When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, JV, and I'm excited to be here. Always anxious to start a new week. And this week is no exception. We've got a great week of programs ahead of us. Tonight we'll be talking about cryptids and specifically an area called Area X. Michael Mays will be with us. He's a cryptid seeker and an author. He'll talk to us about chupacabras, black pumas. He's written a book about black pumas. And his recent trip to an area called Area X in search of the wood ape or what we might know as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Tomorrow night, we've got another great program. If you're filling in your calendar here, Kathleen Martin will be with us tomorrow, an author and UFO researcher, and she'll be telling us what to do if we suspect we've been abducted by aliens. That'll be tomorrow night's program. Wednesday, demon seer June Lundgren will be back with us. She'll return to talk about demonology. She's got a new book out called Demon Seer. And then on Thursday night, Rob Jung will be here. He's an author and an adventurer. He'll talk about the Cloud Warriors of Peru poisons from the jungle, and his own paranormal experiences. So we've got a great week of programs ahead of us. I'm really excited about this. But before we get going, I have to to share something that occurred uh, today. And it's just a lesson. You know, we all learn these lessons now and then, and we have to be reminded once in a while. It's the same thing with, and I shouldn't say this because I know once I say this, I'm going to regret having said it. But it's like that lesson you learn when you lose your computer hard drive crashes and you lose everything, and you say, oh, From now on, I am going to back my computer up at least once a week or whatever the frequency is, right? And then you don't do it, or you do it for a little while, then you forget, then you don't do it, and then all of a sudden you have a second hard drive loss. I guess maybe I'm the only one that's done this because I've done it several times. But I had another lesson today that has nothing to do with computer hard drives. This is actually uh, one of those lessons about paying attention to where your money's going because... um, you know, I, I we all have cell phone bills, right? Everybody essentially has a cell phone bill they have to pay. Most of us do it online, just the way it works. It's easier that way. And you get these paper bills in the mail, and frequently, uh, I know I have rarely opened these things anymore. I just I get them, I throw them away. I know I'm going to do it online, whatever the deal is, and I don't look at it very closely. Well, today, for some reason... I was uh, cleaning off my desk, and I came across two of these cell phone bills, and they both were about the same date. And I'm like, that's funny. Why would I be getting, getting two bills for this month? So I decided to open them, and I did, and one of them looked perfectly fine. And then the second one I opened, it was, it was three phone lines that I did not recognize. It was a new, it said first bill. It was a brand new account. It included these three phone lines with unlimited data. You know, that's pretty much what everybody gets anymore. And then three brand new phones. 
And it was about a $400 bill. And I'm like, whoa, 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 this is not mine. And I ended up calling the company. I'm not going to mention who it was if I haven't already. I may have, but I don't remember. And uh, I said, hey, this is, um, this is not my account. Why am I being billed for somebody's three phone lines and their three brand new cell phones they, that they bought on August 8th? It's my, my name, my address, uh, but it's not my account. So the guy looks into it and he says, oh, um, hmm, yeah, I don't know what's going on here, but maybe what happened is, I can see it's your social security number is here. He said, maybe what happened is, is a clerk at one of their stores accidentally clicked on your name versus someone else's name. This is one of the reasons I go by JV, because when your real name is Jim, James, and your last name is Johnson, I think there's probably more James Johnsons in the world than, than there are insects in the world. That's not to disparage any of the other James Johnsons. But anyway, uh, so, you know, he said uh, the clerk may have clicked on the wrong thing. And I said, how could they possibly just click on the wrong Jim or James or whatever Johnson? And all of a sudden I started getting billed for somebody else's cell phones and their phone line. I mean, it's just crazy to me. And I said, I said, what my bigger concern is, though, if you have my Social Security number on this account, are you sure that this is, an, uh, is not an identity fraud situation and somebody's got my information and they're using it to buy cell phones? He said, I don't know. We're going to investigate it. So I'm waiting to hear back from this company to see what actually happened here. But either way, I'm a little disturbed by it. So my lesson to you and what I, the reason I'm spending so much time talking about this is that check your bills. Look at them because you can't assume they're going to be right or they can, you can't even assume they're going to be yours. That's what I learned. That was my lesson today. And that's what I pass on to you tonight as we get started on a great week of programming. Right here on Beyond Reality Radio. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will have our guest. Again, it's Michael Mays tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Maybe someone took my identity from listening to the show. You think that's possible? Why don't I give you my social security number just so you can keep an eye out for it in case someone... No, I'm just kidding. Welcome back to the program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Uh, My guest tonight, Michael Mays, is a cryptid seeker and an author. He's been on the program before. Last time he was on, we were talking about Black Panthers. Shadow Cats is the name of his book. He's also got a book called Patty, a Sasquatch Story. That happens to be a children's book. Michael, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation to come back. You ever had to deal with identity theft or fraud or any of that stuff in your life? Uh, I'm I'm knocking on some serious wood right now, but yeah. uh, not 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 yet, not yeah. yet. Yeah, I just had this weird thing with my cell phone account. You got to watch that stuff. That's the thing we all get kind of complacent and we stop looking at them. You know, we pay them all. Oh, yeah, I'm very. We, yeah, I'm right? very. Probably anal would be the right <laughs> word about looking at bank statements and and bills and things, looking for line items that, that don't belong. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, you, you, assu- you, right. you, you assume that with the technology and the computerization of it all, it's going to be accurate, but it's not. you gotta, you got to keep an eye out for that stuff. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. <laughs> First thing, uh, what have you been up to since you've been on the program last? Oh, uh, since then, I've, I've continued uh, with the blog and my work with the uh, NAWAC, um, which stands for North American Wood Aid Conservancy, uh, Bigfoot research group um that spent some time up in uh, our main st- 
study site up in southeastern Oklahoma this past summer. Um, had some interesting uh, experiences while we were up there this summer, and uh, and then of course you know just the day to day life demands most of the most of the time, unfortunately. But uh, but just been uh, uh, working on a new book um, regarding our activities with the NAWAC, and uh, hope to have that completed. By this time next summer, for sure, um, pretty well into it. But that, that pretty well sums it up, I guess. You dedicate a lot of your time to this effort. Uh, what point did this become of interest to you, and did you start pursuing it in a more serious way? Well, as far as interest goes, um, I've been interested ever since I was uh, a little kid. Um, probably most would say I just never outgrew it. Um, I, I Grew up and uh, as a child of the late seventies and eighties, and the, those seventies years, those were kind of a golden age for Bigfoot and, and the Loch Ness monster and things like that. Uh, yeah. A lot of things were on TV uh, at the time, and uh, boy, when I saw you know Steve Austin, the, the six million dollar man type Bigfoot <laughs> on TV, boy, that was it. I was I was hooked for good then, and and I guess I just never never quite got over it. Um, I was. In my, I was probably 36, 37 years old, uh, well into adulthood before I started pursuing anything as an adult, uh, trying to get established jobs or, you know, got married, had young kids and things that just demanded, you know, all of, all of my time. And uh, I heard um, a speaker who was from, at that time, the Texas Bigfoot Research Conservancy, the TBRC, which has since become the uh, NAWAC um, uh, at a at a function, and, and he was talking about Bigfoot, and and he sounded like a sane person. He didn't sound like you know a lunatic or anything. I thought this, I need to talk some more to this guy, you know. And uh, I grew up in the Piney Woods in East Texas, so we'd always had stories about you know the wild man and. and uh, the term Bigfoot wasn't used a lot back then, but uh, that wild man term was heard a lot. Booger, things like that you've probably heard about. And um, talked to him and went to a meeting and uh, joined up with those guys. It's going on, I guess, 14 years ago now, 14, 15 years ago. I have to ask because I remember watching uh, The Six Million Dollar Man as a kid. And I uh, mm-hmm. was a big fan. I think everybody that age thought it was pretty cool. First of all, $6 million wouldn't buy you a leg these days, right? But <laughs> back then, <laughs> no. that, that built a completely bionic man. But um, I don't remember an episode where he fought Bigfoot. Was that a regular run uh, oh, yeah. part of the series? No, no. That that was, uh, if, if I'm recalling, that was a two-part episode. And I think it was Andre the Giant who was in the suit. And uh, uh, it turned out that, uh, you know, well, you know how they think of this kind of stuff. I don't know. It turned out Bigfoot was a kind of a, for lack of a better term, an android or a robot that was uh, his job was to shoot people away from a hollowed out volcano where there was an alien base. So he was just a lackey for these aliens. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, I mean, that was the greatest thing I ever heard of as a kid. You know, but, uh, uh, but yeah, it was quite a big deal. Um, there, there weren't many people cooler to a you know nineteen year old kid. Than, than Steve Austin, you know, maybe Evil Knievel, 
maybe in the 70s, but that that would have been as close as competition. Well, I tell you, you're walking me right down memory lane here. Nostalgia <laughs> is flowing. Um, but you're right about the 70s being kind of a golden age for this stuff. And I, I've, I've said it a million times on this program, so forgive me for repeating it, but uh, the television show In Search Of with, with Leonard Nimoy mm-hmm. was a real catalyst to many of us of that age starting to think about these ideas. I remember the Bigfoot episode. I remember the Loch Ness Monster episode. I remember these things vividly, and I remember Leonard Nimoy's voice narrating the show, and I, I, I know personally that's where my quest started for answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that well. Uh, uh, Peter Graves uh, had a show as well. I, I do not recall the name of it right now. Um, uh, that dealt with a lot of the, these kinds of things, and uh, yeah, it was just kind of a time. The I guess the uh, the Patterson Gimlin film footage was still fairly new, kind of fresh. That, yeah. I, that was shot in '67, uh, so by the mid '70s, you know, wasn't even ten years old yet. Um, well, the other the, and, the other uh, thing about that is that that footage was shot in '67, but we didn't have a, a way to view it uh, at our in ho- at our homes. Until it was featured on something like In Search of, and then, you, then you could Correct. see it. I actually saw it the first time at a movie theater. Oh wow! Um, uh, on the big screen, and you, you imagine the impression that made on a uh, you know eight nine year old kid, how old I might have been at the time. Although I was pretty young. We, my grandmother, uh, my grandparents lived in a little town in East Texas called San Augustine. It's uh, very close to the Louisiana border, and had a little. One screen theater and on the old town square, you know, kind of Mayberry like. And uh, my grandmother loved uh, movies, and uh, she never really got to go. My my grandfather kind of felt they were a, a waste of money. He was pretty old school about stuff like that. But when uh, my brothers and I, we would go spend a week every summer. And uh, when we were there, he he gave her his blessing, and, and we pretty much got to do whatever we wanted. And uh, she loved movies, especially sci-fi. She loved sci-fi and Tarzan. Those were her two favorite <laughs> kind of movies to go see. But uh, I don't recall what the movie was that day, but there was some kind of feature, short little vignette before, and it was dealing with uh, uh, Bigfoot and the Patterson-Gimlin footage. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, the side of that, you know, that, that would a walking left or right across the screen and, I asked her, I said, Mama, is, is that real? And she never took her eyes off the screen. Uh, but she said, well, that's what they're saying, honey. And uh, since then, you know, like, uh, it just really made a big impression on me. And, you know, at the same time, we had movies like uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek. And mm-hmm. another film, which I still find fascinating today, is uh, Chariot of the Gods, based on Eric Van Daniken's work. Um, they were all designed to pique our curiosity, and they certainly had that effect on me. Oh, absolutely. There was uh, uh, Charles Berlitz uh, wrote a book on the Bermuda Triangle that really That's right. interest, interested me as well in that same general period of time. So, yeah, it was, it was really kind of a golden age and awakening. Uh, now, some some of this material has not aged very well, uh, but um, but it served its purpose, as you said, to kind of pique the curiosity of people, especially young people who tend to be a little more, uh, I guess you could argue whether it's naive or open-minded, but uh, a little more open to such things. You mentioned the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film. Obviously, it's uh, you know a, a bit controversial, but also considered the holy grail in many cases of uh, Bigfoot footage. Uh, do you think it still holds up? I do. Um, 
and here's kind of my argument against it. Um, forget what the the figure looks like as it as it crosses uh, across the sandbar there. Um, the most convincing evidence I, I've heard it has to do with the stride length of the creature, the the the, the length between steps, uh, between footprints that that were seen and measured and documented by by multiple people. And I, off the top of my head, I do not recall uh, what the what the uh, exactly what the stride length was, but I do know it was as you watch that figure. It was walking. Now, it was walking briskly, but it was walking. It was not what you would call it at a run. Um, and the stride length was, was such that um, a man in a suit would have had to have been pretty much running full out, really striding out there uh, to, to get that big a distance between prints. And clearly that was not the case. Um, I found that very compelling. Now, other you know, features, you know, the kind of the knock need gait, uh, the build, the muscles that you can see kind of uh, flex. Uh, you can see uh, finger flexion, which if you had arm extensions, uh, you wouldn't have been able to see that. Uh, uh, those things have all held up pretty well over time. Uh, Roger Patterson was not a, a Hollywood makeup guy. The pinnacle of the makeup at that time was a guy named John Chambers who did the, the original Planet of the Apes movies. And if you go back and look at the the Charlton Heston Planet of the Apes movies, uh, you know, they, they don't even come close to what you see in the Patterson-Gimlin footage. And, yeah. uh, um, not real convincing at all. How far have we come since then? Has anything else surfaced in the, what, 42 years since that is it four, 50, how many years? 52 years, right? Uh, sounds about right. 52 yeah. years. I'm a history teacher, not a math guy, <laughs> so you'll have, to, you'll have to get the paper out. Yeah, it's 52 years since that was uh, that was filmed. Have we gotten anything since then that's as compelling or, or even or close enough to being, even if it's a little uncertain, uh, compelling enough mm-hmm. for us to say we've gotten some uh, another good look at this? Well, I believe there are some some compelling uh, pieces of video out there. The, the problem is that with video uh, so editing software that's so readily available now, um, I don't. I mean, think about it. If, if the Patterson Gimlin footage is just not enough to convince people that this thing is a real flesh and blood animal, then I don't know if anything produced today when, when Photoshop and, and its yeah. uh, cousins are, are all out there so readily available for people to use. Um, I, I don't know if any photo or video will. Um, one of the best uh, pieces of evidence I've seen is, are a couple of photographs that were taken in southeastern uh excuse me, they were taken in uh, central Oklahoma, of all places, on um, near the town of Concho, uh, which is uh, Indian land. And uh, uh, there are two still photos. One shows this big animal in, in profile, and, and one it has turned to look at the photographer. Um, very, and, and the backstory to it is also very convincing, but... Uh, uh, I believe those are legitimate. These were taken. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, 
the casino footage that's supposed to be out there that people have talked about a lot uh, that was taken in Oklahoma from a security camera yeah. in the back of the mm-hmm. casino in Concho. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was taken, these photos were taken on that same land, uh, same tribal land. They had had a, um, a powwow, um, and uh, they had, uh, after the powwow was over, they, they had a work crew uh Going out, cleaning up, you know, some of the mess after after the after the big party, so to speak. And um, um, a gentleman named Keith Lumpmouth was his name, in uh, member of the tribe, and he took these photos. Uh, it was originally it was taking a photo of a coworker when he noticed uh, kind of through a window. There was kind of a uh, a wall of of trees um, behind his coworker whatever he was doing, but there was a little window in, in the vegetation where this thing was peeking at him, and uh, uh, he got these two photos. They're, um, uh, they're available on the NAWAC website, and uh, uh, they're also on my blog. Um, if you search for Concho, they, they would pop up. Um, I, I think those very well might be legitimate. Um, I've always been intrigued as well by the Harlan Ford uh, Honey Island Swamp uh, footage. Um, I'm not a big fan of the three-toed prints, the casts and things that he came back with later. Um, but the footage itself I find intriguing. Uh, and that was um, that was taken kind of before the Bigfoot craze, before it became kind of a uh, pop culture icon uh, used in advertising and, and on T-shirts and mugs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the backstory to that is, of course, that he he shot that. His he passed away. His daughter found it in the attic among his things. He had never publicized it. He had never um, uh, told very many people about it at all. She had never seen it. Um, and uh, you'd think if it was some kind of hoax, he would have promoted that a little more. But he never did. But it did explain to his daughter his his obsession with trying to find this thing for years after the fact. I find I think it's pretty intriguing as well. It, it's not nearly of the quality of the Patterson Gimlin footage, but uh, I think there's a good chance it might be legitimate as well. Tell us a little bit more about the NAWAC. Okay, uh, it stands for North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and the Wood Ape is just. Uh, uh, what's commonly called Bigfoot Sasquatch. We, we believe it's a big ape that lives in the woods. So we, you know, wood ape, uh, and, you know, we hope that, you know, using that term, uh, it, it might be taken a little more seriously by, by some people, you know, uh, uh the term Bigfoot, you know, is as far as being taken seriously by the scientific community, you know, Jack right. Links and others have kind of kind of ruined that for everybody, you know, and, and it's all, you know, good fun and everything, but, uh, but it's not going to be taken very seriously. So, um, and, and that's what we, the members of this group, uh, what we believe it to be. We believe it's a, a, a large North American uh, ape, basically, likely a descendant of, Giganopithecus, which I'm sure you're familiar with that theory, sure. uh, um, that lived over in Asia. And uh, uh, contemporary 
you know, animals lived at the same time as, as Giganto uh, came across the Bering Land Bridge during the last Ice Age, uh, and uh, as well as a lot of people. Um, and while we don't have any fossil record of the, that species in North America, if these animals that lived at the same time came across at that time, there's really no reason to believe that um, that this ape could not have. And it, it certainly fits uh, the typical description uh, of, of a Sasquatch or a wood ape uh, that's given typically today, you know, 8 to 10 feet tall. Um, now, experts have gone back and forth and round and round over whether it was bipedal or not. I know that Grover Krantz was a big believer that it was bipedal. Now, how he got that from a, a jawbone, I don't know. But, see, you know, you need somebody on a higher pay grade than I uh, to explain that one to you. But uh, uh, there there are a lot of them who, who believe that this uh, this particular ape did spend a lot of time uh, on two legs. Um, so if so, I mean, it's the perfect candidate, it or its descendants. Um, and like I said, contemporaries like the red panda, uh, which is kind of a rusty-colored, ring-tailed critter. Uh, it, it lived at the same time, and uh, they found fossils of it as far east as Tennessee. So, I mean, it had a lot of time to, to get to North America, spread out, and and make itself at home. Uh, and I think a lot of people had that idea that that Bering land bridge was just this, number one, it was made of ice, which is a misnomer. That's not true. It was heavily forested. It was just a the seas receded, you know, uh, right. and and it was like that for a very long time. And so it was a, it, the animals had plenty of time um, to get across and go back and forth. And uh, uh, trawlers up there in the Bering Strait still pull up a mammoth uh, tusk every now and then off the bottom uh, because that was actually dry land there. And that's where animals were living and, and moving and, and, and procreating and all that good stuff. So uh, that's what we feel is probably the most likely uh, explanation for the whole Bigfoot phenomenon. You've been out in the field quite a bit, and we're going to talk about your visit to uh, Area X. Uh, in probably the next hour, we'll hold that until the second hour of our discussion. Okay. Um, but in the in the time that you've spent in the field researching, searching, um, observing what's some of the uh, and hold the area X stuff, but what's some of the other stuff that you've seen or heard or gathered that helps you believe that you're on the right track? Well, we, we've spent a lot of time um, tracking down um, and taking witness statements. Um, the idea behind um investigating witness reports, you know, people that, that write into us, is to try to narrow down uh, where are these things? Where, where are they living? You know, can we establish any sort of pattern? Um, and over the years, you know, we, we've investigated hundreds and hundreds of these accounts. Um, and, you know, we plot them and, and we, we look for these patterns and, and um, what we found is, you know, the, the eastern half of, and of course our, our main area of research has been uh, the Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana area. Um, what we have found is is that where these reports are coming in, 
uh, the bulk of them anyway, it would be exactly what you would expect of a living, you know, breathing animal. Uh, lots of rainfall, ample water sources, rivers, creeks, streams, um, uh, forested areas. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they think of Texas, they, they picture an old John Wayne movie where they're out in the desert, you know, and they ride about the same rock ten times, you know, during the chase scene. And, and it's just not like that. Uh, there are parts of Texas that are certainly like that, but the whole state is vast and it's very diverse as far as its uh, geography and its climate. And and we have uh, in the four state region I just mentioned that there's more forest uh, in, in among those four states than the entire state of Oregon. Uh, so a lot of people just don't realize that. Yeah. And so there's a lot of room uh, for all kinds of wildlife to be in. And the people that are seeing them, it, this is the area where they're seeing them. There are outliers, of course, but uh, uh, by far the bulk of them, it's exactly where you would expect an uh, animal to live, where if this was a mass hallucination or uh, hoaxers, you know, you know, why would people just in the eastern half of the state be seeing these things or hoaxing these things? And and it's just it, it just correlates very well with, wildlife patterns of, of known animals. Um, so that, that's some pretty convincing stuff. Now, as far as, now we found tracks. A um, um, friend of mine in the group, Daryl Collier, and I were out uh, in uh, the same Houston National Forest. We were out in the middle of nowhere. Now it's heavily hunted. It's not too far from the city of Houston. It's only about an hour away, millions of people. But uh, uh, we were a couple miles from the nearest road and in the middle of a creek bed that was full of uh, uh, copperheads and water moccasins, and we found a trackway that went up about a quarter of a mile uh, of not just one but two sets of tracks. One was large, about 13 inches uh, in length, which doesn't sound tremendously long, but if you equate that to a human foot size, that's about a size 14 shoe. Uh, and, you know, it's a pretty big boy. And uh, and then there were smaller tracks of uh, about six, seven inches long that that were accompanying this one, and and they were barefoot. And we had uh, there was all kinds of debris in that creek. It's a runoff creek. It's it's not a live creek, so there's not water in it at the time where we were there. But uh, everywhere the creek would take a bend, there'd be kind of a silty, sandy bend uh, build up there in the bend, and and that's where we would find these tracks. And um, and one of them was just the most pristine thing as far as the track that I've, I've seen. I mean, the toes were all clearly visible, an enormous big toe. Um, and we just could not fathom somebody two miles from the nearest road walking around barefoot in this uh, debris-strewn, strewn, snake-infested creek bed. And, uh, you know, to find something like that out in the middle of nowhere, that that's that's pretty convincing, and um, so that was one thing. But the thing, probably the most convincing to me, is is uh, was a visual I had in two thousand five in that same area. Uh, Michael, we've got just a couple minutes here before our top of the hour break, and I want to go back to this concept of um, the Sasquatch, Wood Ape, Bigfoot, whatever it is, being so elusive. And one of the things that people often bring up when they say 
you know, it's hard to believe it exists when we can't find a corpse. You know, they die, they get sick, mm-hmm. just like every other creature does, yet we can't find a corpse. And some people would say that, um, you know, we just haven't been in the right place at the right time. You know, how many times do you walk through the woods and see a, a bear skeleton there? We know that bears exist, but we don't find their bodies lying around. Um my question to you is, do you think that that's the case? We just haven't stumbled upon them in the right place? Or do you think Sasquatch actively hides any evidence of its existence? And particularly, you know, if, if there is a sick or, or a, a, a deceased creature that it buries it, hides it in some other fashion? Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, it's a legitimate question. And, and to be honest, I, I, I'm not sure I have a completely satisfactory answer uh, the things you just mentioned, I believe, are valid. I think uh, the key is, I think people are, are kind of, uh, the, spoiled isn't the right word, but, but because of hunting, they think that you find these animals that are dead in the woods, you know, all the time. So, and, and the key here is an animal that has died of natural causes. It was not, you know, shot by a hunter. It wasn't hit by a truck or something. It's not, it's not a roadkill specimen or something like that. Um, you got to think how many uh, dead bodies of any kind of little critter do you find out in the woods that died a natural, that died of old age, you know, or, or whatever right. the case may be. And the answer to that is, is not very many. I mean, you, you'll find some bones and things now, but not very many. And then, you add to the fact that, you know, you, you've heard all this before, you know, acidic soils, insects, scavengers, um, um, weather, if it's a hot, humid, you know, area, these are all factors that are going to, you know, a body's just not going to last very long. Um, scavengers are going to scatter the bones. Um, people may very well have found or seen bones and just not known what they were. I mean, having a yeah, no, no rec- hog bone from yeah. a bear bone from a, you know, an ape bone. You know, it's just uh, you're not going to find a completely, totally intact skeleton, if that makes sense. That would be recognizable as something unusual. Um, but you know, the final thing that I've always kind of thought is is you know, an animal that's sick or injured, they're going to retreat to an isolated. Um, place where they can be alone and, and left alone. I mean, uh, the example I always use is you, you think about uh, uh, a dog that, that snake bit or something. He's going to go crawl up under the porch, right. and he's going to stay there. And he's either going to fight this off and live and come out in a few days, or he's going to die under there. And so if an animal crawls away into the deepest, gnarliest, uh, most inaccessible spot it can find because it feels bad, um, the chances of people who typically don't get very far off marked trails right. going in there and finding it are pretty slim. Looking ahead to the programs we've got coming up the rest of the week, tomorrow night we're going to be talking about UFO and alien abductions. Kathleen Marden is our guest tomorrow night, author and UFO researcher. She's going to tell us what to do if we think we've been abducted. Wednesday night it's about demons with demon seer June Lundgren. She's been on the program before. She'll talk about demonology and her new book, Demon Seer. And then Thursday night, Rob Jung will be here to talk about his experiences with the Cloud Warriors of Peru, Poisons from the Jungle, and personal paranormal experiences. 
That's Thursday night's program. So a lot of great stuff coming up. By the way, a great way to listen to the show. Some people just can't stay up this late. Not everybody's a night owl like we are. But if you can't uh, can't do that, a great way to listen to the show is by downloading the show as a podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts or uh, in the in the uh, Google Play platform. So all you have to do is go and subscribe, and then you'll get it downloaded to your phone every day after it's uploaded um, from the night before. So it's a great way to listen to the show, and it makes the commute a whole lot easier. Another great way to uh, check out the show is by visiting the YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and type in JV Johnson. It'll come up. A lot of uh, great past episodes there, plus we stream the show live every night on YouTube. Gives you a little bit of a... A video uh, to go along with the uh, audio. So a little bit of fun there, plus a great chat room. Anyway, again, we're talking with Michael Mays tonight. He's the author of a couple books. Last time he was on the program, we were talking about his book, Shadow Cats, The Black Panthers of North America. And in just a moment, we're going to be talking about Area X and his visit and his research there. But before we do that, Michael, going back to the Black Puma Panther discussion that we had last time in the book that you wrote, has there been any update, any more um, sightings, or stories that have surfaced since you were on the program last, last specific to the Black Panthers? Oh, yes, sir. We, we, I've collected, you know, um, oh, I couldn't put a number on it, but uh, several more what I consider to be credible reports um, of, of large mountain lion-sized long-tailed cat that's just completely black. Um, and, of course, these are not supposed to be Real animals. That's what, um, yeah, not supposed to only, exist. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, they're not supposed to exist, right? That's the official line. Correct. There, there's no animal called a black panther. That That's a kind of a regional term or a colloquialism. Uh, it's kind of a catch-all phrase for any large cat with a long tail that's, that's black. Uh, the black panthers seen on TV and in movies are um, are either melanistic leopards and that's what they are most of the time, or melanistic jaguars. And melanism is just a genetic um, mutation. It's, 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 this is too simplistic, but it's basically the opposite of albinism. So instead of having white fur and pinkish skin, um, a melanistic individual will be completely black. And, um, and those two, the jags, the jags and the uh, the leopards do exhibit melanism, uh, and of those two, only one's a New World cat, and that's the jaguar, and they're supposed to not live in the what's now the United States anymore. And so, what are these things people are seeing? Uh, so, in the book, we talk about what they might be, the, the suspects, and and uh, lots of sighting reports and things like that. But they do continue to come in. And I've got a, an interactive uh, sightings distribution map. You can go to the blog, uh, and you can access it there. And you can click on the pin and, and get a short little snippet of exactly what happened there and, and what the people saw. And, um, and again, it, it's, it's, I've collected enough now that um, you're starting to kind of see the pattern. And it's similar to what we talked about earlier. It's, it's where you would expect um, – uh, a living, breathing animal, you know, to be. It's in the eastern half of the state, uh, lots of rivers, uh, rainfall, lots of uh, solid prey base. We've got a huge feral hog problem here in Texas, and especially on the eastern half of the state, and that's where we're seeing these things. And, and uh, 
um, people are adamant. You know, people that would laugh at you if you said you had a Bigfoot sighting, well, they'll be ready to fight you if you tell them there's no such thing as a Black Panther. So um, after years of collecting all these anecdotes and sightings and things, uh, I said, you know, I should put these together in book form. And uh, as far as I know, it's the only full-length book on that topic um, out there. I, I could be wrong, but I don't know of any others. All right, so let's talk about Area X. First of all, you mentioned it earlier in the discussion. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about Area X? It's a great name, isn't it? It's awesome. <laughs> it's very <yeah>. mysterious. <laughs> it very. <laughs> the, way, uh, the way that actually came about, uh, we had in the NAWAC, we, we had three regions, three areas of study that we had kind of zeroed in on that we had uh, – you know, through following up on these sighting reports and, and things, uh, and uh, we called them areas X, Y, and Z. And it just as easily could have been area A, B, and C, uh, but we chose X, Y, and Z. I don't, I don't know why. Of those three, um, the only one that's really panned out uh, to be what we think is a legitimate hotspot for these things is the one that was dubbed Area X. And it, it has nothing to do with the X-Files or anything you know, like that. I, I wish it, we had a cooler story for the name, but, uh, but that's where the name comes from. It's an area. Area X is basically uh, the Washita Mountains of southeast Oklahoma. Just in southeast Oklahoma, it's, it's, it's confined to Oklahoma? Well, you know, the Washita's are, are a mountain range that uh, most people don't even know there are any mountains in Oklahoma. Uh, they think it's just one big prairie land, right. and, and most of the state is. But that extreme eastern along the Arkansas border, uh, you know, you got the Washita's, and then you know, go a little further north, you, you can get into the Ozarks and Arkansas and Missouri and all that. Um so, you know, now we've zeroed in on a little, you know, area of it, but basically it's it's uh, southeastern Oklahoma and the Washita Mountains. Um, it's an area with a long history uh, of sightings. Um, and I was really surprised when I first started to go there just how entrenched uh, the the you know the Sasquatch the Bigfoot is in the area. I've, I've spent some time up in Washington State. I've gone to some of the smaller little towns out in the uh, Gifford Pinchot National Forest, and, and uh, where you see the you know the um, chainsaw art, you know the statues, and, and everywhere you go is Bigfoot this, Bigfoot that. Um, it is every bit as present. Um, in southeast Oklahoma, in the culture, uh, in the in the you know pop culture, every, everywhere you look, you see it on the T-shirt or there are cutouts, life-size cutouts around every business. Uh, it's it's every bit as as prevalent there as it is up in the Pacific Northwest. You have said that you are f- that you firmly believe that uh, Area X has a population of wood apes. And mm-hmm. when you word, use words like a population of and firmly believe, obviously you've seen something, heard something, had experiences there that convince you that it's not just a, you know, a, a nomadic uh, Bigfoot group walking through. They actually live there. Uh, what, what makes you firmly believe this? Well, that, that, that seems to be the case, that they don't seem to 
to leave. Now, when we say they don't leave, we're, talking, we're not talking about um, they don't move within this, these mountains, these, these, these mountains and valleys. Uh, uh, they do. They, they move around that area, but they, they do seem to stay um, in that area. Um, one of the ways uh, we, we feel like we were able to discern this was we feel like we were able to put a, a, a micro tag, a, a tracking device on one. Uh, we, we have um, these nano tags, they're called. Um, they're meant to tag wildlife. Um, if it's the same concept as putting a collar on the bear with a tracking device on right. it. Um, so these nano tags are very small. They're meant to have been put on, um, you know, like reptiles, turtles, smaller animals, as opposed to a big collar like you'd see on a bear. And uh, they, they're activated. They're, there's a magnet on the back that when the magnet is removed, it starts to broadcast a, a signal that can be tracked uh, if you have the right telemetry equipment. And uh, we... Uh, one of our members, Mark McClurkin, it was just ingenious. He, he, you know, you can't walk three feet up there in the woods in those mountains without running into spider webs. And so, that you know, there's all kinds of uh, insects and debris that gets hung up in these spider webs. And, and so he took some um, sweet gum, uh, some, uh, excuse me, not sweet gum balls, but uh, he took some, uh, what we call them down here, cockle burrs, sticker burrs, and he cut one in half, and this nano tag fits up in there, and uh, it just looks like a natural piece of debris. And, and, it, and we suspended it uh, with uh, some black thread uh, along game trails, and uh, it's it looks like just a spider sitting on its web or something caught in a spider web, which you walk through all the time up here. And there's another piece of thread that goes through a loop on the magnet. And so anything that, that walks um, through there, it, it, and it, that burr is going to stick to the coat of the animal. And he also, you know, put a bunch of rat trap glue on it and stuff to make sure it's stuck. But the string is going to pull, uh, it's going to pull the magnet off. It's going to start to broadcast. And we feel pretty sure that we, we managed to tag one of these animals and we followed it, uh, uh, we kept up with it. For, we could never run it down. Uh, that turned out to be we tried, but that turned out to be folly on our part. We just we couldn't we couldn't just we got close a few times, and it would always you know move away from us, and, and we couldn't uh, get a visual on it. But we had airplanes in the air uh, tracking this thing, and 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 it kind of. We showed the range that it traveled over the winter months. Uh, it was a different area than what we see in the summer, but same vicinity. But um, so we got some really good data. There's a paper on our website. Uh, you, if you Google tag seven in AWAC, you should be able to pop it up. You should be able to read the paper uh, that was written on it. Um, and there's some good information there. Uh, so that's one reason uh, they do move within the area, but we don't feel like they migrate back to the Rockies in the summer and they come down here in the winter or anything like that. We, we mm-hmm. think that there's a troop uh, or a family unit or, you know, there, there's more than one living in that area based on what group members have seen and heard along with that uh, tracking that we, we did. 
Uh, Michael, I want to get into your experiences when you were in Area X uh, recently, but we only have a couple minutes here, so I don't want to do it yet. I want to wait until after the next break. Um, But at this point, you have a book out that's called Patty, a Sasquatch Story. It's a children's book. Uh, What made you think of the idea of actually putting um, this information into a book for kids? What's the objective, and what made you come up with it? Well, it's basically um, the idea came from watching the Patterson-Gimlin footage. Uh, The creature in that video, in that film footage, uh, has been nicknamed Patty, which is uh, in honor of Roger Patterson. It's a takeoff of his name, uh, as uh, the creature in the video is clearly female. Um, And uh, just one day it kind of dawned on me that uh, the story of Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin and how they came to be at Bluff Creek that day in 1967, that's been looked into, you know, ad nauseum, you know. And uh, I just started to kind of wonder, well, uh, how'd the creature get there? You know, if we're assuming for a moment that it's real, uh, what led, what series of events, you know, led these three beings to be in the same place at exactly the same moment so that, that footage could be captured. And and so basically it's the story of how Patty, the female Sasquatch, came to be at Bluff Creek um, in order to have her picture taken, so to speak, uh, the events that led up to that and the events that followed. Is um, part of your hope here that uh, by introducing this concept to children, that maybe you'll get some and help foster some curiosity in them to help continue the search? I hope so. I hope so. You know, when I was a kid, I I checked out all the monster books our library had, you know, and um, I I would hope that, uh, you know, know, as a teacher myself, that's my my profession. That's what I do. I'm a a school teacher. And, uh, you know, reading is just a vital thing, but every kid doesn't like to read, and I tell them, any kid who tells me that, I said, no, that's not true. You just haven't found the right subject matter yet. Once you find whatever it is that you're interested in, you'll read, you'll gobble it up. You'll read everything you can on it. And I know that there are an awful lot of kids that are interested in this kind of thing. And so my, my hope would be that uh, maybe it would foster a love of reading in uh, young people who might not otherwise take time to read a book. Um, uh, we're competing with a lot of technology out there now, and yeah. uh, that's not always a good thing. And um, so, I certainly hope that that is a uh, something that comes from it. Michael, you spent some time in Area X. You told us what that was, where that was. Tell us what you saw when you were up there, because I know you had some experiences. Well, this last week, uh, um, there, there were two things of interest that, that occurred. Uh, the first was more of an auditory experience. Uh, it was around midnight, the second night we were there. We have uh, uh, um, access, we have a lease on some land up there. That uh, On this land, there's a small hunting cabin. And there's a, it's basically a metal carport. Um, it's It's got a roof, and it's open on three sides. There's one metal uh, wall that comes down on one side. But it's open on each end and on the opposite wall, and it's, it's a place we can. Sco- we've got some equipment stored on pallets and things where we can keep it out of the rain. It rains a whole lot there, um, and, and that's basically the the base camp. Now we've had experiences where we've had um, 
these animals approach camp at night and, and seem to be interested in us. You know, I, I just feel like, you know, they don't have television. We're the closest they have. So when we're around, they like to watch us, you know, we're the, we're the entertainment. And, uh, so we've kind of caught on to that. And, um, so we come up with a strategy to kind of try to catch them in the act, so to speak. And, and, uh, we call it overwatch where, Basically, uh, half the team stays up and observes, and, and uh, we have a dark camp, no fire, no tiki torches or anything like that. It's pitch black, and we sometimes we sit out uh, near where the fire ring is, but without the fire, sometimes we sit up on the porch and conceal ourselves and uh, kind of act like we've gone inside when we really haven't, but uh, we vary it a little bit, but dark camp. Um, wildlife seems to be more comfortable of all kinds of wildlife will approach a little closer when that, when it's not lit up. And so, um, a fellow member and I were sitting out the second night we were there and we do have, we did have thermal, uh, devices that we were scanning the woods with, you know, trying to pick up a heat signature in case something approached. And, uh, shortly after midnight, um, to the west of the, the small cabin, we, we heard a, a noise. Uh, I've heard a lot of weird things out in the woods, but I've never heard anything like this. Uh, it was the sound of something just beating the heck out of the ground with a big stick, or it sounded like some person beating the ground with a baseball bat. It was just wow, 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 over and over and over, like somebody just having a mad fit, just beating the ground. It sounded like it was just west of uh, the cabin, uh, just to the, um, I guess that would be the, as I think about it, that would be the northwest um, uh, of where we were sitting. And it sounded so close, and this went on, pow, 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 and whatever was swinging, whatever it was it was swinging, you could hear it cut the air. You could hear the whoo, like the wind sound as it cut the air right before the impact on the ground. So it was being, it was really being swung with some velocity, whatever it was, before it hit the ground. This went on for about 45 seconds, maybe a minute, just pow, pow. And we were scanning, and we, we could not see it. We could not see where it was. And it was um, startling and, and somewhat unnerving, as you can imagine. And uh, uh, it stopped. A few minutes later, we hear it again. It's moved a little bit now. Now it's almost, it sounds like it's right under that metal carport structure. It, it sounds like it's in it, like it's directly under it, which is only, that might have been 10 yards from where I was sitting and where my friend Tony was sitting. And it's beating the ground again, and um, it's even more uh, violent. It, it, it's beating, the strikes are coming faster and they're harder. You can tell it's hitting the ground even harder. Just pow, pow, pow! Did it? You did it? it did it seem? Wind. Yeah. Did it seem to you it was doing that out of anger? You know, it, it, it's speculation. I, I, I don't know. You know, one of the the strategies we have is we try to keep a presence in this area all summer long, long term field study. Uh, 
when we first started years ago, we would it always seemed like we would get activity on the last night, the night before everyone had to pack up and go home in the morning. You know, the second or the third night, because uh, most mostly we were weekend warriors. You know, back in the day, and it was a long, you know, Labor Day weekend coming up. That would have been maybe a time for an outing, and it always seemed like that last night stuff would start to happen. And personally, what I think is that these apes are hardwired. They've been watching people for a long time, and people that come camping, they encroach on their territory. Uh, they've learned that. No big deal. They'll be gone in two or three days. So there's no need to reveal ourselves. You know, yeah. this you know, obviously they're not going through these thought processes, but on some level, no need to reveal ourselves because we'll just back off. They'll be gone in a couple of days. No big deal. Uh, we felt like the reason we were getting activity that third or maybe that fourth night was maybe they're getting impatient. Maybe they've had enough of us being there. We haven't left quite as fast as they feel like we should. And so they start to kind of cut up and act up a little bit. And this is when you get these tales of people being run out of the woods, uh, things being thrown at them, hearing these vocalizations, um, all that scary stuff from all these stories that you hear about. And, uh, you know, 99.9% of the time, that does it. People leave, right? Um so what we do is, is we get up there and we just stay, and we don't leave. And that's very atypical of what the normal person does, you know. I'm telling you right now, if I'd been there with my family when this had happened, we'd have packed up, we'd have been in that truck, and we'd have been gone. Uh, uh, there's no way my wife or my kids would have stayed there, you know. So that's kind of our theory behind it. So what? Now, it was only our second night there, but we had relieved a team. We'd had teams in there for weeks previously, so there's been a human presence at the camp for a long time. Um, so it starts beating the ground again, and again, it just sounds like it is just right there, and we cannot see it. We just cannot see it with the thermals. It just beat anything I've ever seen, and I told Tony, I said, Tony, it's got to be right there. It's got to be. So we lit up the area and nothing, and it ceased, you know, the activity. Um, Any odor associated with it? I often hear about the odor. No, no, not at all. No, we didn't smell anything, and we we didn't hear anything retreat into the woods, so clearly it must have been farther away than than we thought. At least that was our thinking at the time. So we said, okay, let's do this. Let's retreat up onto the porch, and maybe it'll think we've gone inside. And maybe that'll embolden it to come close enough for us to get a look at it. And uh, we got so we got up on the porch, as tight to the walls we could. And within two minutes of us getting settled down and quiet, there's just uh, it starts again, and it sounds like it. I'm sitting on the far west side of the porch. It sounds like it is five yards from me, maybe, and it's just beating the hell out of the ground right there. And then finally, uh, we, I, initially we thought it was a big rock or something that had been thrown maybe that hit the, that hit that metal carport structure. It just, it, I can't even describe to you how loud it was. It just, it, it just reverberated that whole structure like it was a bell. I mean, but it was such a loud 
bang sound. Uh, I think what happened now, as I've thought about this, is whatever this thing was swinging and hitting the ground with, I think that last blow, it just picked up and it swung at level, almost like a baseball player, you know, hitting a, a pitch. And it just knocked the fire out of the, that metal side of that of that structure. And uh, we came jumping down off the porch and ran over there. To, and again, we're looking, we're scanning, and then we couldn't pick it up. So we hit the lights, trying to pick it up that way, trying to get some eye shine or something. And we got nothing. We never laid eyes on anything, but it is absolutely one of the strangest um, experiences of my whole life, but for sure up there in that area. And you think about what could be capable of producing that event, that noise, uh, what can swing a big branch or stick or whatever it had, you know, I'm, I'm speculating on what it might've had, but it was beating the heck out of the ground with something. And, you know, the nor- the known animals that are up there of any size, you've got black bear, you do have some mountain lion up there. They can't do that. You know, so what was it? Um, we are, between eight and ten miles from the nearest paved road, we are in the middle of this. This is a very rugged, very isolated place. This is not the kind of place where people wander through. So um, I can't think of anything else that it could have been other than one of these apes. You, you have to have thumbs to grab on and, and swing a club or a, a stick or whatever it was swinging. So, you know, it was just, but it was absolutely bizarre. Did you go the next day and look around to see if you could see any footprints or find any other physical evidence? we absolutely did. And um, the ground up there, this is the rockiest place I've ever been. I've I've never been anywhere where it is so hard and the soil is so rocky. Uh, The Washita's are very old and they're crumbling. And um, uh, they're they're eroding, and 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 they're just rocks everywhere. And it, the soil is packed so hard; it's just uh, it. There are not many areas at all that are very conducive to uh, to tracks of any kind, be it a hooked animal or a, or a cat or, or a bear or anything else. Um, sometimes along the creek, you'll you'll find a muddy spot, and and here and there, but. Uh, we weren't able to discern much of anything, uh, and there was an area torn up ground. But there's a there's an armadillo up there. It's about half the size of a Volkswagen. It seems like it's the biggest thing armadillo <laughs> I've ever seen, and uh, it keeps things rooted up pretty good right there around the cabin. So we weren't really able to discern. Okay, there's an area of disturbed leaf litter and ground clutter there, but that could have been that armadillo. You know, we don't know, but nothing that was obvious. Uh, uh, like I said, it was just very bizarre. You know, a lot of people um, f- find a bit of a hobby in going out into the woods and looking for Bigfoot or evidence of Bigfoot. Uh, is it your opinion in any way that they should be cautious? Do they have to fear? Are these creatures dangerous? Uh, or would you give them any other kind of advice? Well, I think they should be respected like any animal. Uh any animal that's backed into a corner 
or if you were to get, you know, take a black bear, for example. Black bears have thrived where grizzly bears have almost were almost driven to extinction because grizzlies would stand their ground and want to fight. So they got shot. Black bears ran away. Now, that's not 100% true, but for the most part, they climb a tree or they run away. But if you get one, get between a, a sow bear and her cubs, you're, you know, you, you've got a problem. Right. Uh, and so in that regard, the, you know, black bear shy animals that are pretty big chickens for the most part, but under the right circumstances, they can be dangerous. And I, I would venture to say the same thing about, about uh, these wood apes, I think. Given the right set of circumstances, you know, something could could happen. Maybe it even has. But by the same token, we've been up there. We've hiked. We've we've been all over that area, uh, and we've documented all kinds of activity over these years. You know, we're, we're getting close to a decade up there now of of you know full summers of, of field studies, and um, they've certainly had the opportunity to hurt us if they wanted to. And, you know, that hasn't happened. There have been visuals. You know, some of the members have, have seen these things. Uh, and they always are retreating away. That's when they're seeing, you know, it, it's... So they've had ample opportunity if they wanted to. But, you know, like any animal, I think, given set of circumstances, uh, you know, it could be dangerous. I, I think you have to be respectful, mindful, and, uh, you know, cautious for sure. But I don't think you have anything to, to be mortally afraid of. Michael, we've got about a minute left here. What's your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I'm actually uh, working on uh, another book. It's, um, it's basically uh, the story of the NAWAC, how they were formed, uh, basically, and, and um, all the adventures from the beginning right up through this past summer. And, uh, it's kind of the history of the group, and it's also going to be uh, where everything that we've learned, documented, photographed, you name it, it, it if we've done it, it's going to be in there. So uh, if you want to know about us and, and, and what we've been up to and what has convinced us that these things are real and that they are there, uh, it's going to be in that book. Perfect. Thanks for being with us tonight, Michael. Uh, I appreciate it very much. My honor. Orion, you heard me talking before the basically in the first segment of the show about my uh, brush with uh, identity fraud. Yeah, yeah, that stuff's a little bit scary when you think about that. I mean, sure. you know, I don't know if uh, if they, if somebody has my social security number, but I mean, it's really all it takes. You get somebody's social security number and you have their address, which is easy to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they can pretty much do anything. Yeah, I mean, I've had uh, fraudulent charges built to my card, uh, but they but they're fraud protection right. caught them and brought up you know called yep. me to verify them but it's easy these days you know i mean i know my email address and whatever password i used at the time have been sold on the internet yeah yeah you got it and, and I, I went through and changed a whole bunch of passwords today yeah you got it you, you got to make an awkward uh, annoying password and you got to use a different one for every site just write them down get a little book yeah you know then you got to carry the book everywhere it's really a nuisance <laughs> Um, well, one trick is you think of a phrase like, say, to be or not to be, and then you, if you can change a word to a number like two, right. you do, and you do the initial. So you'd be number two, B, O, okay. you're, getting, no, you you're, know. you're doing something very visual on the radio, so 
Um, <laughs> but I get your point. Good point. All right. So tomorrow night we've got uh, we're going to be talking about abductions. Well, what do you do if you think you've been abducted? That's Kathleen Martin on tomorrow night's program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll see you tomorrow. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.